read from 1 Corinthians 13, although we'll read the last verse of the previous chapter. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and Give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the, the, the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Follow the way of love. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Ask God's help. Father, we thank you for giving us your word in its perfectness and completion. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We praise your name, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. We look to you now to speak to our hearts and minds through that word. Teach us, rebuke us, correct us according to our need, that as your servants we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work you have for us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I'm preaching, I try to bear in mind the, the preacher's uh, aim. 
which is expressed in uh, Ephesians 4.15, uh, to speak the truth in love. It's always good for a preacher to bear in mind, uh, first, that everything I say be the truth. That's important. And that everything I say be said in love, equally important. Speaking the truth in love was the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace without truth is mere sentiment, and uh, truth without grace is cold and dead. First um, Corinthians 13, uh, Paul's greatest words, according to some, uh, is a favorite reading at the uh, countless weddings I've conducted, but it was not written with weddings in mind. I'm not putting off anybody choosing it, but it was not written for weddings. It was a rebuke to an unloving congregation. The most important chapter in the Bible, that's how some commentators have rated 1 Corinthians 13. For ten years, I uh, sought to establish the teaching of these three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, uh, as I worked with people who imagined they had the gifts that are mentioned in the context of those three chapters. Um, if you have a gift, it would be wise to ask, where did it come from? God must be the source of your gift. Um, and I want you to know that the conclusions that I'm going to pass on to you, I didn't just reach late this afternoon, uh, but uh, I've worked hard at them for many, many years. Um, like Paul, who was addressing problems in the church at Corinth, uh, for 10 years I was addressing a problem in one of my churches along the same lines. Well, now, there are three divisions to the chapter. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at it in that way. Starting at verse 31 of chapter 12 to verse 3, that's dealing with the better way of love or the best way of love. Secondly, from verses 4 to 7, uh, we will look at the nature of that love. And then thirdly, uh, verses 8 to 13, the permanence of love. Now, 1 Corinthians, uh, the letter itself, was written about A.D. 55, so it was one of the, the early letters. Um, and chapter 14, which we won't be going into, describes an example of corporate worship at the time. Uh, worship in the New Testament was to be focused on Christ, um, guided by the words that he spoke during his public ministry. Churches were to follow his teaching and that of the, his chosen apostles. How were Jesus' words to be recalled? Congregations never having seen him or heard him. There was an oral tradition of sorts, but the apostles' doctrine has not, had, not, had not as yet become scripture. God then used 
miraculous means to recall Jesus' words and the teaching he gave the apostles. Um, the words that came through these means were inerrant and binding truth. The words came through revelatory gifts, namely prophecy, gift of prophecy, uh, the gift of foreign languages, and the gift of a special supernatural knowledge. But that's just an introduction, but just to um, go to the first section, the best way of love, um, Paul starts off by saying, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Well, if you are to desire gifts at all, it would be better to desire the greater gifts. Some gifts are more important than others. Um, yet, he says, I will show you the most excellent way. It behoves the Christian to pursue excellence. I like uh, Oswald Chambers' uh, title of his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. That's, that's a good title. God is not looking for giftedness. How gifted we are is His prerogative. So what does He look for? Well, the answer is, He looks for fruit. He's the, the gardener and we are His horticultural product, His, his agricultural prog, uh, project. We are His field. Um, he's looking for fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. No one naturally possesses divine love. Agape, you know the word. The Holy Spirit must plant in our souls love divine, which Charles Wesley says excels all other loves. Romans 5.5 5, God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who, whom He has given to us. So the writer compares the exercise of gifts with the demonstration of love. That's the comparison he's making. God's greatest gift to us, if we are Christians at all, is the gift of the Holy Spirit Himself who enables us to pursue the way of love. Chapter 12 uh, and verse, verse 1, uh, the writer uh, is dealing with a query about spiritual gifts. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Um, you see, confusion abounded in Corinth because um, church members were keen to acquire and exercise miraculous gifts. And that for personal advantage. To boast. But God gave gifts to benefit the church. He says that. Not for personal indulgence, but to benefit the church. Uh, one's private room is not the place to exercise a gift. As sometimes one has heard. The gifts were not being used in a loving and disciplined way. They were called gifts of grace, charismata. You know the word. You've heard it many times. Uh, miraculous or otherwise, the gifts were made for the common good. To each believer, God gives at least 
one gift. Um, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and the Holy Spirit distributes them to each one just as He determines. Uh, you, must, you must bear that in mind. To each believer, God gives at least one gift. There is no ungifted Christian. Um, sometimes a Christian has several gifts. To the end that each Christian might be a blessing to the people of God. The distribution of gifts is as God determines. But He wants us to use whatever we, gift we have in a spirit of love. Corinth's believers fell behind in some areas of their lives, their, their lives but not in gift. They are a very gifted congregation. But multi-giftedness did not prevent the many sins that were current among them. Sexual immorality, heresy, drunkenness, gluttony, party spirit. You've seen all those in the past chapters. Little love was evidenced in their behavior toward one another. They were preoccupied with the tension-attracting gifts. My brother and sister, giftedness is not holiness. Uh, I like—I don't often quote from the Living Bible. It's, it's a paraphrase, and um, so I, I, I wouldn't normally read it in public. I, I prefer a translation. But Kenneth Taylor did a real good job paraphrasing the first three verses of this chapter. Let me read, read them to you. If I had the gift of being able to speak in foreign languages without learning them and could speak every one of the languages spoken in heaven and earth but didn't love others, I'd only be making a noise. If I had the gift of prophecy and knew all about what will happen in the future and the gift of having all knowledge, knowing everything about everything, but did not love others, what good would it do? Even if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I would still be worth nothing at all without love. If I gave everything I possessed to poor people and if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatever. That sort of impact, isn't it? it? It really gets home to you. In other words, whatever is devoid of love is of no account to God. Not little account. It's of no account to God. Um, the supremacy and the indispensability of love, the gauge of personal holiness and spiritual maturity is not gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. The supreme virtue is love. That ranks first. And it encompasses all eight virtues that are the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5 and 22. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love is the entire fruit, and there are eight segments. And I've just described the eight segments. Spiritual gift and spirituality are not the same thing. A person's value does not depend on their gifts. 
but on their character. Love is pleasing to God and valuable to his people. Paul says, don't imitate, don't imitate my gifts, imitate my character. Um, uh, he, he's, he's saying that love is pleasing to God, helpful to his people, and he wanted to be a good example. And uh, he says, possession of gifts is not a sign of God's approval. It's not a sign even of his blessing or even a reward for your faith. They are only a sign of his grace. They are gifts of grace. Uh, it's, a, it's possible to abound in gifts as the Corinthians did, yet have scant love for the members of the church. Without love, gifts counted for nothing. Uh, conversely, if you have much love but little gift, you're a joy and you're a blessing to God's people. What gifts we have or do not have is not our choice. Mary, well, the, 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 the scripture says this, and um, let me just, yes. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, the godly Mary McChain says, it's not great gifts that God uses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Growth in grace as you go through the chapter, you'll discover that growth in grace is measured by three indicators, three main indicators. You grow in faith, you grow in hope, and you grow in love. These three abide. But how will we recognize this love of which Paul speaks? Well, verses 4 to 7, second point, describe that love, the nature of love. We can be very brief here because I'm going to spend much more time on the last point. The identifying marks of love describe the character of Christ. Positively and negatively, we are told what love is and what love is not. Negatively, it doesn't envy. It's not proud. It doesn't boast. It's not rude. It's not crude. It's not self-seeking. It's not quick-tempered. It's not always cataloging people's wrongs or carefully recording offenses they've committed. It doesn't delight in evil. Love is none of those things. Then what is love positively? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love rejoices in what is true. Love protects. Love trusts. Love hopes. Love perseveres always. And that's the nature of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. It does not expose them. So that's the nature of another third point. The permanence of love, verses 8 to 13. This is a more difficult section. We need more time here. Differing views are held on their interpretation. I'll give you my understanding. That's all I can do. Um, one American preacher used to say, in my humble and accurate opinion, but um, um, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But uh, when I became a Christian in 1953, evangelicals believed what I still believe. 
Um, and I've hammered out uh, over the last 60 years through study and experience what I believe this, these few verses to mean. Um, those believing other than the standard evangelicals belong to a group that found their roots in Los Angeles in Azusa Street in 1901. By the late 50s, when I'd just been a Christian a few years, the situation changed due to the emergence of the charismatic renewal, which claimed to have rediscovered authentic Christianity and um, recovered the lost doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The movement was boosted in 1959 in Van Nuys, California, again California, um, when Pentecostalism spilled over into another denomination, an Episcopal denomination. Uh, the book that propagated that growth was a book called Nine O'Clock in the Morning by Dennis Bennett. And then uh, it spread into the Baptist Church and then into the Brethren and into the Catholic Church and then into the Presbyterian Church. Well, in contrast to the permanence of love, and verse 8 says, love never fails. God is eternal love. But in contrast to the permanence of love, the virtues, faith, and hope will only persist to the end of the age. This is my understanding. When faith gives way to sight, and when hope is realized, finally, there'll be no need for hope in heaven. Uh, hope has been secured, nor will there be any need for faith in heaven. Um, but as we understand the apostles' language, love continues forever, Faith and hope will continue to the end of the age. Uh, now then, he says that there are other things that will pass away before faith and hope. Prophecies will cease. Utterances made in known foreign languages will fade away. Knowledge, that supernatural gift of knowledge, will pass away doesn't mean knowledge will pass away. That's, that, that would be silly. It's the gift of knowledge. And at the time of writing, these gifts, uh, prophecy, knowledge, and foreign languages, were providing miraculous and authoritative revelation to the church, which they greatly needed. Um, but there would come a time when they would be no longer necessary. These gifts were of temporary duration. God said so, and this is the the essence of the chapter, they would be replaced by something better and more durable. The church is informed, is informed in advance to prepare them for this disappearance. They were to accept it and not be surprised when it happened. Foreign languages first. Prophecy and knowledge might last for a little longer. What we call the ecstatic gifts will cease. And historically, they did. I was reading John Chrysostom, who was the bishop of Constantinople uh, in the 4th century, one of the historical figures that is given a lot of respect because he, his writings were so um, uh, edifying 
writing in the fourth century, he said this whole area of gifting, First Corinthians 13 and 14, um, is obs very obscure. But the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to. We, we weren't there. We don't know exactly what was happening. And by their cessation. What used to occur then, now no longer takes place. John Chrysostom. Now this view, I'm glad to say, is endorsed by Augustine and by uh, Matthew Henry and by Jonathan Edwards and by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So I'm not alone. I'm not alone. We are not to think it's strange that they ceased. Nor should we feel short-changed. Throughout history, the Lord removed many things when their shelf life expired. There is no high priest now. There are no Nazarites uh, today. There are no dietary laws. There's no temple. There are no judges, as in the book of Judges. There are no kings. There are no apostles, with a capital A. Throughout salvation history, the passing of time brought changes in God's economy uh, and his methods. God often said he would do a new thing. What he once did, he will do no more. He did not act in the same way in every age. That's not true. The same practices have not been per perpetuated throughout all generations. The ceremonial law, the, the altars, the animal sacrifices, the ephods, the urim and the thummim, uh, the priesthood, the new moon and annual feasts of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles, incense, casting lots and so on. The vestments, they've all gone. Um, they were superseded. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself was the fulfillment of so many things. Jesus is now the final prophet. God spoke in times past in many varied ways. But in these last days, he has spoken, us, spoken to us in his son. He is the final prophet. He's not only the priest, he's not only the high priest, but he's the great high priest. No more priests apart from the priesthood of all believers. No special priests. Jesus, and also the Bible says he's the king of all kings. He's the prophet with a capital P. He's the priest with a capital P. And he's a king with a capital K. And he's fulfilled all uh, the prophecies in that connection. Jesus, when Jesus came, things were discontinued. They were rendered obsolete. Things that were go good while they lasted. But Hebrews, the book of Hebrews speaks of the shadows being shadows of better things to come. Um, when realities come, shadows are discarded. Um, that God did, in various ages did different things in different ways is beyond dispute. I say this. To any who assume that all the gifts prevalent in the early church were meant to continue without modification beyond the apostolic age and be available to the church in all subsequent generations. I know it's now the majority view. 
to believe that. To believe in continuing divine revelation beyond the time of the completed Bible in the same ways as were practiced before the completed Bible. I've been in the presence of those more than once who excitingly look for and expect extra-biblical revelation through foreign languages, through prophecy, and through inspirational knowledge, which were revelational in their purpose. But it was perfectly in keeping with God's character to set them aside when God gave the church his complete oracle, which is the Bible. Someone says, well, why, why did he give the gift of foreign languages in the first place? Well, you've got to go into chapter 14 for that. And you'll find that Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28. He says they were assigned to unbelieving Jews. The gift of foreign languages first appeared on the day of Pentecost. You know all about that. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, when God, fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, were there and converts also to Judaism, and they exclaimed, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages, known languages. Through the diaspora, they spoke their Hebrew, but also their local language. This is what Matthew Henry said way back in 1715. He said, the gift of languages was one new product in the spirit of prophecy given for a particular reason that the Jewish enclosure might be taken down, that all Gentile nations might be brought into the church. There was a breaking down of a barrier. The Jews rejected the Messiah and the gospel. And he goes on, these and other gifts being signs have long ceased and been laid aside. And we have no encouragement to expect the revival of them, but on the contrary, we are directed to call the Scriptures the more sure word of prophecy, more sure than voices from heaven. To the Scriptures we are directed to take heed, to search the Scriptures and to hold them fast. Don't forget that we are commanded not to add to the Bible or take away from it. For centuries, our good friend Alistair Begg says this. I better quote someone else apart from myself, you know, on this. But Alistair has become a great Bible teacher. He says this. Before the outbreak of Pentecostalism, for centuries there was no practice of these gifts in Orthodox churches. Oh, he's in big trouble now. Uh, as an act of judgment, God will no longer afford the privilege to Israel of speaking to them in Hebrew and Aramaic uh, exclusively. Rejecting their Messiah, the gospel would go to the nations and these languages were an indication. Foreign languages were a sign of coming Jewish judgment. And in AD 70, the judgment was pretty decisive. Um, Israel as a nation was set aside in unbelief 
and the sign was accomplished. So Paul says, whether there be foreign languages, they shall peter out. <clears throat> Prophecy and knowledge continued for a little while, longer. But when the Bible came to be, there was no need for them. Um, Paul promised the coming of something complete, something perfect, as a cause for rejoicing. And my position now is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. A debate centers around on what Paul meant when he said when perfection comes. And that would take an evening in itself. So we, we, we can't go into that. But the view right, widely held is that it means heaven. The perfect. Because there's nothing perfect in this world. It must be referring to heaven. But there's one thing that came to this earth that is perfect. And that is the completed scripture as originally given as the perfect revelation of the will of God. That which was perfect. Paul says in Romans, I proclaim Christ Jesus in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. All scripture is given by the process of God breathing and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness that the servant of God may be thoroughly and completely equipped for every good work. What I'm saying is the Bible is sufficient for all that. And then what does it mean face to face? Someone quoted uh, an author yesterday and um, referred to his book. And I said, well, how, is, how did he get on in, with his book? And he said, well, he disagrees with everybody. And... Um, uh, Sometimes you feel as if you're disagreeing with everybody. What does face-to-face mean? People say, oh, well, that must be heaven. Well, I've gone through the expression, which is a Hebrew expression throughout the Bible. It's either face-to-face or mouth-to-mouth. It can be translated either ways. Never once, never once does it refer to heaven. When Moses communed with God, he communed to God face to face and mouth to mouth to be face to face you've got to be mouth to mouth you've got to be face to face God communicated him without, to him without hindrance and he's the epitome of prophecy Moses is the model and it was unhindered communication and he put it all down and we call his books the Pentateuch Moses wanted to see God face to face. And God says, no, in the same chapter, where he uses the term face to face, God says, you cannot see my face and live. So we've got to reconcile that. What does he mean? Face to face. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. The living word of God. Well, now, I've, I've got to come to an end um, um, now remain in this age faith, hope and love 
We live by faith, not by sight, but one day we'll, we'll see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance of what we have not seen. The end result of your faith is the salvation of your souls. There's an end result to faith. Faith will give way to sight, and you will see the glory of God. Of course, the Bible says we'll see Jesus face to face. Heaven is hope realized. But this is my conclusion. In 2013, all the prophecy and knowledge we need to know, what God wants us to know, is now already on record. We do not need any more. And those who hold to that conviction, yeah, they are exposed to ridicule, mostly remain silent as a result. Many are seeking gifts that are no longer available, at least not from God. If you take another view to the one that I've outlined there, what's the answer? Well, let me suggest an answer to the dilemma. We can agree on the, quest, on the answer to that question by getting together over an open Bible. The Bereans examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. Not by quoting from someone's experience or your own experience. Everything we do and believe in our Christian lives and church fellowships must be subjected to the test of Scripture. The answers are to be found there. You show a kindness to God's people when you insist that they must test their experiences by the Word of God. I know from long experience that many Christians are confused on this on this issue and what I've said this evening is based on a long and a patient search to understand for the sake of God's people so I invite you to um, open the Bible and study young people you might want to take a reference down and I'm not going to comment on it but Jeremiah 23 from verse 16 to the end you read that tonight but final a final bottom line application to do with our spiritual ambition in the church tonight. You may not be the most gifted. You may not be the most intelligent. You may not be the best educated. You may not be the most eloquent. And I know what it is to envy another man's gifts. You may not be a gifted musician. You may not be the wealthiest. Many things are beyond your grasp because you're not gifted in that direction. Does that decrease your value? No way. You may not be the funniest. You may not be the prettiest. So some ambitions we have to give up. There are some things I'm not equipped to do. God just hasn't gifted me in those areas. Um, but there is a most excellent way to pursue. And to this there need be no exceptions, not one exception in the church tonight. There is something within your grasp that will make you extremely precious. God can make you, even you, the most loving, the most joyful, the most peaceful, the most uh, patient, the kindest, the goodest, gentlest, the most faithful, the most self-controlled person in the church. 
That is open to everybody here tonight. No matter what gifts are available, you, you can be... And that will only happen if you want it to happen. If that's what you want to be. Um, and what you intend to be. You can become someone filled with the love of God, which is God's will for you. May the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. You see, love, open to every single person here. Do you want to become that person? And Charlotte Chapel will be utterly transformed. Will be the talk of Scotland. If it's your ambition to become filled with the Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit, that is authentic Christianity. Not pipes and whistles that uh, are of no consequence. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were filled with love and emptied of criticism and dedicated to Christ? Let's pray.